Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Can You Keep a Secret, a Pull Tab Sports production. This is John King here with my my partner. Do you like when uh, – have you noticed when you're a business partner and you refer to the guy you work with as your partner, Tom? Right. It's a little awkward sometimes. I think it's awesome. You just like it? Yeah, and I want him, I want him to think it's the other way. Yeah, well, yeah. I think I think actually that's probably cool. So this is my partner. I could, I could do a lot worse than you. Trust me. Hey, thanks, honey. I love you. Um, so we did take a trip. We were on airplanes, not together, but uh, in the same We never traveled together, just like the president and the vice president. And that's true. That's true. You got to be safe. You can't, you can't get into a situation where the entire Poltab sports empire is down. I mean, who would it be next? Uh, would Caitlin run it? I don't know. We it's it, we did that when we first started. It's kind of like yeah, how you become the king. You saw that whole, you know, that whole yeah. family tree. We'll have to go back and look at it. I think we should have Harry run pull tab sports if both of us die to kind of, he, he seems like when you look at the queens, the crown, uh, you know, the, the path to the crown, he seems to get kind of screwed. It's like the heir and the spare, and he's the spare. I think we let him, Megan and Harry are in charge of pull tab if both of us die. All right, it's done. I don't know how to reach out to them to tell them, but Gabe probably does. I'm sure we can get on Instagram or something. What were your thoughts on Pittsburgh? You well, know, did you... Uh, I liked it a lot. It's a good time. Yeah, you got to a, a, a Pirates game? Yeah, so I experienced it a little bit differently than you did. So we were out in Cranberry, PA, which is a nice suburb, right? And yep. we were there for the USHL fall classic and our company's been fortunate enough to be working with a few of the teams plus the league and and um we're also helping put six teams on the west coast and that's going really really well we hope that it, it is through the ushl so cranberry is the epicenter of all that so i like that area but then i also was downtown too for a night and went to the pirates game it was fun we did get to go out once and uh I had the pleasure of what was this sandwich shop called? It's called Permentis. I might be saying it wrong, but it's a iconic, iconic like deli. It's they've got you know it's a chain now, but it, back in the day when there was you know the uh, steel workers, they would they would have a short period to eat. So basically, they made these sandwiches on white bread, you know, corned beef, whatever it is, and then they would put coleslaw and fries just on top, smash it together, and hand it to them, and that's what they would eat. So that's what they're famous for. So the whole sandwich was a vessel for a full meal. It was unbelievably good. I didn't. Did you have fries on the sandwich yeah, you ate? Yeah. So oh, they had slaw and fries, and had corned beef and pastrami, and they just—it was phenomenal. Just as, absolutely phenomenal. As good as advertised. Yeah, definitely for sure. Why don't you describe the moment when I asked our, um, <laughs> when I asked, uh, after ordering a, a white claw black cherry, when I, with a glass of ice, maybe I might've even asked for a glass of ice. When I asked him if he had gluten-free bread and he turned to me, all I could see was the guy in a Cordell Stewart jersey behind him slumped over the bar. And he just said, Man, this isn't that type of place. Yeah. Well, first of all, he was in a bad mood um, and he was having a bad night because it was pretty crowded because it was a Steeler game. And you think he was about to get cut, like he was going to go home, but then we moved our table. Well, so we didn't move our table. You moved our table. You only had two chairs. And, there were three of us. And I told him we would get another chair. But anyway, so long story <laughs> even longer. Yes, I think he was upset that he was put, you know, we were put in his area and he couldn't go home. So your comment to him was fantastic because the utter look of disgust on his face was fantastic. 
Oh, and I, I ended up getting a bunch of fried stuff that was so gross. Oh, the fried pickles, they were terrible. I think the fried pickle looked, the, the size of the fried pickle was as big as a cucumber. Um, I would have needed a handsaw to find the color green. It was so gross. But uh, well, my, I, the well, sandwich looked amazing. I should have just done it. Yeah, it was great. You know, the best part of that night, though, is when then we went out uh, for a little nightcap to the bar we walked into that basically I think was somebody's home and we walked in, they're all smoking and your comment to the bartender who was also smoking goes, Oh, I guess we can just smoke in here. Which they didn't were, seem to like either. No, and, no uh, they didn't like that either. And then they also didn't seem to like that. We were just there when they were trying to close, probably presumably to walk into their living room and go to bed in their house. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. And then when they booted us out, early then we had no transportation back to the hotel so the, the whole night was one of those adventurous nights but it was super fun the uh yeah the the thing they use in the military to like block comms i think the entire city of pittsburgh just has no lifts no ubers yeah we sat outside in the dark for what 45 minutes waiting yeah. for waiting for someone to come in a lift. I think, and then I think I got the trifecta. Didn't I ask him to try to play music? And then yeah. he didn't like that either. Yeah. He was, yeah. A, he was a, a heavy religious man because he was talking about his uh, mission or pet, you know, his whatever. I don't That's know. right. He was, yeah. And you were like sitting there trying to play young, gangster rap. Yeah, I was trying to play young gravy. Yeah. yeah. I, it, uh, I don't know that Pittsburgh suits me. That's oh, probably. I like it. Pittsburgh's my kind of town. Yeah, they like you more than they like me. We did have an addition to the office. Uh, we've been talking to some guys from Muddy Cow who has a bunch of restaurants around town. And one of the unique features of these restaurants is they have, instead of having the classic popcorn machine, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they have free-flowing cheese balls. Real cheese balls. Like the only time you see cheese balls is on like a boat. Mm-hmm. Or, really? what, kind of fucking, I mean, I don't what kind of fucking boats are you <laughs> Most boats have cheese balls, I think. I think well, probably because they float. That's probably a boat. They float on the boat. Uh, but I, yeah, so apparently all of their restaurants, they, instead of just calling all their restaurants Muddy Cow, they're mm -hmm. like Muddy This and Muddy That. Yeah. Which like, is, yeah, yeah. And, I didn't but, realize they have 16, 17 locations. And all of them, as I understand it, are just completely lubricated with cheese balls. Okay, lubricated, interesting term, but you do get lubricated there because the other thing they're famous yes, for is two, yes. for two for once, yes. always. So it's a good spot, I got to tell you. And the cheese balls, they do hit the spot, you know, so you walk over just like you would popcorn. They have the little trays or the little, you know, whatever, and you fill your little thing up and you sit down and people dig it, man. So think of the amount of drunks that just wake up the next day with just orange, orange hands yeah, yeah. just laying on their couch in like the front room of their house. But, um, so we were talking about this cheese ball phenomenon and our, our uh, she's not even really an intern, but uh, she's the, a full timer. The full timer that works in our office, she made the executive decision to buy a bin of cheese balls from Sam's Club. Uh, a yeah. tub. I would call it a tub of cheese balls. Yeah. It's about the size of the robot R2-D2 from Star Wars, and it sits on top of um, the Green Bay Packers file cabinet that we also have. It's, a, lock, it's a locker, John. It's a locker. <laughs> Is it from Lambo? They, <laughs> well, had, they had plastic lockers in Lambo? Well, yeah. Back in my day, they did, yes. Will you tell me when you bought that? Like, were you... Uh, 
like on a CD-ROM and you got a link <laughs> and you're like, Farva just won the Super Bowl. And you, what, yeah, tell me, do you remember how you got know. that thing? No, no, I don't. I think it was a gift actually. It's outdated. Yes. It's cool though. And so the problem with these cheese balls is it's a clear tub. So at any given time you can like, you'll walk in and the level has dropped yeah. four, four and, inches. And why do you think that's dropped that way, John? Well, we have a bunch of people We've gotten a little loose with the keys to our office, so it could be any number of people coming through, scavengers. Uh, well, I don't, my wife thought people were stealing our checks. They might be. Oh, my God. I, uh, it's a shit show over there on Main Street. But I don't like the fact that the, the you can constantly monitor cheese ball progress. I, I think the if it was just a – if they just painted the tub – and no one needs to know how much is left. You should do that with uh, liquor bottles too. Yeah. Because you always feel guilty when you're drinking. You're exactly. Like, oh, just dang. put a, just put make a it, label on yeah, it. Yeah, almost like a, you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, it but is. They are good. The, the season's changing, which means that if you're at the grocery store, you need to look for the apples. We, ha we have reached that kind of fall, crispy season. And our good friends at Jimmy's make some caramel dip that is available at Cub Foods, Hy-Vee. It's right next to the apples. And man, let me tell you, if that's not catnip for the fall season, I don't know what is. You can dip pretzels in there. You can do apples. You can make, I'm sure you've made apple nachos. Yeah. Probably. Thin sliced apples, drizzle, a little uh, caramel dip from Jimmy's on there. You don't have to cook them. You just kind of eat them on a cookie sheet. But you got to check this stuff out. It's really good. Jimmy's is a Minnesota company, third generation. And as we like to say here, don't you be messing with the dresser. I actually took some of the caramel uh, dip or, you know, the caramel product and put it on ice cream. Ooh. It was really good. Is it too thick to do that? Or yeah, do I, you... I, I nuked it a little bit. Okay, microwave? Yeah. yeah. It was, I haven't it heated was it up. Uh, the wife asked me that the other day. She's like, we ever warmed, like, we ever warmed it up? When you warmed it up, did it get thinner? Um. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Like it's yeah. It was it was easier to you know like pour and yeah, it was good. It was how, really good. How was it on the ice cream? Good, it was fantastic. Um, what do you think of fall? You know, I you have the luxury of having multiple hockey players still playing, so it's not a bad ride for six months. You get to you know stand on the glass and make them cry on the way home in the yeah, car. Looking forward to all those moments. Um, oh, you did think you played well. Okay. What made you think that? Well, why don't, don't you list three I, things that made you feel that you played well tonight? I just don't talk. I just, when they, they, they make comments to me, I just look straight ahead and don't, don't speak. Well, I don't have that. So now it's like, once it starts to get cold, it's like, oh man, six months, we're going underground. Oh, oh let's talk about this really quick. So like we talked about in the summer, I, I don't want to wreck your train of thought, but do you go from clear to dark liquor? Oh, you know, I do like Manhattan's al almost all the time in the right bar. If the bar is dark and there's dark wood yeah, and it kind of feels like fall in the bar, I yeah. can drink a Manhattan all the time. But yeah, I do like, uh, yeah, I'm not doing, I would say tequila soda. I know you're a gin and tonic guy, but I would do tequila soda more in the summer. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, get into the bourbon in the fall. Yeah. That's so, a that's a positive. That's a good way to yeah, look at it. Yeah. I like, uh, I like where you're like having a, having a, whiskey and whatever and just chilling and on a nice you know 65 degree afternoon night dark and stormy yeah and i like it I, I, I like the fall a lot i'm a huge fan of the fall 
Uh, the wife calls it the season of death. Why? She, well, that's what's happening. Everything's dying, even though it's colorful. She is. She is. She is. She is an optimist. Yeah, she she doesn't <laughs> like it so much. Um, the death is coming. Um, that's great. So, uh, and then, uh, how about Halloween? You know, I, mm, big fan. You really? Yeah, I love Halloween. I would find. You know, I have a daughter as well, but I I, I think it's the kind of season, it, the holiday where it's sort of. I don't know, people dressing up sort of promiscuous. Well, I'm not a dresser upper. Like, I'm, are you a dresser upper? No, like, no. We don't, you know, we're, we're not very popular, so we don't get invited to a lot of parties and stuff. But if I was and someone said, hey, you have to dress up, I'd say, fucking no way am I doing that. But I, I do like Halloween. I mean, uh, I just like the whole thing. The kids coming up, the candy. People are in a good mood. I live in a really nice area where there's tons of kids and the moms and dads go out in wheelbarrows and they have some cocktails in their hands and social people come up and say hello and I, I, I dig that part of it a lot. That's the golden era of Halloween, the pull in the wagon, you got a six pack for the dads. That is great when your kids are young and you're just going through the neighborhood, yeah. you're getting tuned up. It's so wholesome. Like yeah. you're a little drunk when you get home, but like yeah. then you have like two of the you get like the bit of honeys or the old man candy your kid doesn't want and you come home. Yeah, I, I we're out of that now. But I when we were in the wagon pulling era, it is a great holiday. So I got to tell you something funny. So, you know, I've lived all over the place. So when I was living in Houston, Texas, so we had small kids and we were kind of like, like in a relatively nice little development. Uh, I think Halloween was from like 4 o'clock to 4.30. In the you afternoon? know, like, like big city, you know, everyone was just like, get your shit and get home. Get it done. <laughs> yeah. And so it's nice where. They use like, one of these hourglass. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, you know, they're like checking their watch. But what I like about where we live is like at nine o'clock, 930, there's still people coming up. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so it's just, it's a lot chiller and a lot more, you know, like Norman Rockwell. Do you count the trick-or-treaters? No. I kind of like, I kind of like that. I like, like, get one of those, like, Hey, you know, things. we had 111 this year, honey, you yeah. know, and last year it was 88, you yeah. know, our neighborhood must, our demographics must be getting younger. Did you ever have it? We had a, did you ever say demographics with the wife? Not really. No. Uh -huh. Psychographics probably. Yeah, maybe. Attitudes are more valuable for decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but we had a house, they don't do it anymore. I was going to ask you, um, there was a house that everyone knew about that they had to go because it was so elaborate, right? Yeah. It was a pirate. Oh, like they, they made a pirate the, ship. Scare the kids. crap out of you. Uh, not so much maybe. You know, it was just a fun thing. Everybody had to go there. So they did. They moved um, so they don't do it anymore. But it was, did you ever have any like a house yep. that you had to go to and everybody would go, oh, I got to go to the pirate ship before the night's over. Yep. Yep. There was a neighbor called the Shelleys and they were up on this driveway that was way up high and they did the full nine yards and they were kind of famous they would have a bench in the front of their yard with a like a scarecrow and a yeah, but that, one they would that they pretty. would insert a real person you know oh, so like you. the pop-out factor yep, yep. was there um but yeah that's that's good i i do like the giving out the full size is pretty baller you know when you give out the full size that's candy. edina stuff though that's a different level no edina gives a whole like a pack of full size <laughs> so it's like a little like a like a variety pack of all like either well, there'll usually be a sponsor it's either R mars or m&m and then you just you just go get them we do like we hand out <laughs> range like, rover keys we actually hand out <laughs> 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 you just got the lexus with the huge bow <laughs> well one year we gave out rolexes that was a pretty cool year <laughs> um but we um Here's pickleball rackets. And, and, yeah. the, and the Garrity household, we do the whole like, 
we try to give every kid a couple things, right? Yeah. So it's pencils like, and stuff and little pencils. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Bible verses. Yeah. Exactly. Now you know we just we we get all we get just the, all the the assortment bags and just fill them up and then just we want to make sure it just you kind of take hands full and just give them to the kids. And I always freak out. I'm I'm that dad there where I <clears throat> I'll be telling Gina like. We're running out of candy. What are we going to do? Oh, you know, yeah. like freaking out. Like, like a you're moment. running yeah. a quick trip. Yeah. Running over a couple kids on the way, probably. Yeah. But we've always seemed to make it work. So that's fun. I do love Halloween. I think it's great. Um, I worked out today before the show. I can tell. And I uh, I walked on a treadmill. Really? Yeah. What well, are you, you what fucking, are you? You, you were in Pittsburgh and asked if something was gluten-free with a white claw. This doesn't, this is a pattern. You know, it really was great. I, I kind of didn't want to work out when I got there, and I went 45 minutes just walking. Were you waving to people and stuff like you were in your I did get the hands up high. I was watching another guy, and he had his hands, like, pumping a little bit. So I was like, if I don't do that, maybe I'm not getting the full thing. Hmm. You you like walking, though, right? I like walking outside. I don't. I wouldn't do it on a treadmill. Well, you might. Maybe, I guess. I don't know. I, I quite enjoyed it. I, I don't know if I burned a lot of cal- calories. I also did want to thank you for um, helping me move last weekend, you know, because... Uh, <laughs> That's just such... That, that is just nonsense. <laughs> so, okay, say it. It's I moved not- last weekend. Uh, do you know that I had multiple injuries? Well, no, the best part about how People you... People are hurt. How like you brought everybody. up the story was like, you know, last week. Yeah, that's how you started. You said Guz threw his back out. Yeah, we got an And I go, how, how did Guz throw his back out? Well... My close inner circle of friends came over to help us move this and not only move, but help us in the my, pinch. You're my partner. And I, I even if we go back, if something were to happen to us moving, then Prince Harry's doing this podcast. Which I, I absolutely would send ratings through the roof. I absolutely hate moving. We've talked about this and I've moved a lot over my life. It's um, awful. Just because of jobs and whatnot. Bad for mental health. It is the worst thing in the world. I would have helped you. I would have. And you said I, you're you're pretty strong. I'm like, really strong. So for my age and for my uh, so um, when you move, you realize stature. there are dudes that like can lift dressers with one hand, and sometimes it surprises you who they are. So you're one of those guys. I wouldn't say with one hand, but I I you, I would surprise you. I can lift some pretty heavy shit. I like. I got that. good balance. Okay, dexterity. Now, I might, I might rip the shit out of your walls. Bring, <laughs> well, that's I, okay because they're tearing it down. So. I, bring, I mean, you may have huge divots in your carpet and everything like that. And if it gets too heavy, I might just drop it. But yeah, for the most part, I might give a pretty good run at it. Yeah, I, I think that's good. I, uh, You know, we got a guest coming on today. It's yeah. good to mention that. I think they teach you in podcast school yeah. when we were in Columbia going to podcast school or Yale. Maybe not, we were at Yale. I, I they tell at, you to mention the guest like 30 minutes in, like after you've talked about cheese balls and Halloween and uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's this a, is the time. We're, we're right, on, I actually, right on scale. I'm looking at our ratings chart and we're right. There's the most people are listening right now. So Tom Lynn is a principal from Veritas Hockey. He's also an NHLPA certified agent. Um, he's the man that uh, he says he built the wild. We'll get into that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're going to talk to Tom about the current state of hockey and some of his better stories. We're going to welcome him. But before that, we are going to talk a little more hockey, which is Joe Mama's salsa. I'm selling it for my uh, 
Fundraiser? Yeah. It's a good. I mean, I'm trying to get that worked out in a couple of places I'm dealing with. So we, it's a great, great fundraiser idea. So it is a great fundraiser. So we're selling it for our beer league team. Uh, it's six fifty a jar. You keep three bucks. It's shelf stable. So no BS with pizzas and yeah. I got to rent five freezers and they got five flavors. Um, and it's, it's a delicious salsa. And so basically for us, the jerseys are 45 bucks, right? So for, for 90 bucks, you can get uh, 15 jars of salsa and two jerseys. And you could either keep the salsa or, or sell them and, and have the jerseys for free. So I found it to be a real winner. Um, it's a great product. It tastes kind of like cowboy caviar, starts tart, finishes with a kick. You can find Joe Mama's at Cub Foods, also a Minnesota company. I like to say it's a magic carpet ride for your mouth, which is what my yearbook caption was um, as well. <laughs> they said as, you were. <laughs> as I was growing up. Yes, exactly. But anyway, this is going to be Tom Lynn from what, Veritas. What was the last part of his intro or that we... The, we, the funny part? Well, yeah. I want to say it when he's here. Oh, okay. I think we can say it twice though. So at the imagine you're writing your bio for something and you you got a couple lines left and you say uh because he probably wrote this himself he is known and respected throughout the amateur and professional hockey worlds in north america and europe not in scandinavia apparently um, his reputation is matched only by his dedication to his clients interests ladies and gentlemen tommy lynn tom lynn Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I do note that Finland is not a Scandinavian country. Is it not? So it, I am res well respected <laughs> okay. in Finland. What would you say in all in, in all of Europe? What's the big the country you're the biggest the biggest in? Slovakia. <laughs> they love you there. Is that still a country? They know me there. How's that better? Have you spent a lot of time over there? Well, when I was with the Wild, we had a quite a few players from Slovakia, so I made an almost yearly summer trip there. Um, and I also went to what's called the Ivan Halinka tournament there, which is the first big tournament of everyone's draft year. So okay. I was there yeah, 10 or 12 times. Nice. So you were at the Wild in the beginning. You 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 wrote a book about it, you know, building a NHL franchise from scratch. What are some of the things the Wild did really well or differently putting, you know, the blueprint together for that franchise? That, you know, that that's an all-encompassing question. Which I don't fault you for, but I'll I do. break it into pieces. Way to go, John. A little bit. I think the integration of the brand throughout hockey operations and the business side was key to their success. And so sometimes the hockey side is not in step with the business side, what they're selling. Business side sell saying, hey, we're, we're selling a bunch of punks who are rebellious and the general managers gaining a lot of players who are obedient servants. You know, there's a dissimilarity in the brand. Whereas the wild started out by saying, we want a certain type of brand, grassroots hockey, Minnesota oriented, hardworking, respectful of the game, strong skating. And that led to the hockey team having the same identity as the business side was selling. Jack Sperling had started that with Matt Maka, Todd Lewicki came on board and really pushed that in all aspects. They even coached any points of contact between personnel and fans to have similar touch points in the words they used and the themes they emphasized. So in 2004, 2005, after the team had been around for a little bit, we were having that the lockout at the time and we were going to be coming back and a lot of teams were fearful of what it might look like. The Wild knew what it would look like because it had set a solid brand on the ice and off that to this day continues. So I'd say that integration was key. Las Vegas copied that. Of course, they used my book. 
But George I, McPhee, I heard that. I heard that he had purchased my book for everyone in the front office to start, but they wanted to integrate everything off and on ice there. And then the Seattle Kraken, with Todd Lewicki once again as their first president, is trying to do the same thing: integrate, integrate, integrate. So, are you taking credit for the success of three major franchises? No, only a third of the credit. Okay, I just want to be on the same page. Yeah. So, let me ask you a question. So, back to that because I think people will find it interesting. <laughs> when you got involved, because you were one of the original hires, right? Were you one yeah, of the? I think the... I was the fourth hire in okay. hockey ops. Okay, and so did you actually have like whiteboard moments? Did you and Doug and Sperling and Mika get in a room and start talking about it? Or mm -hmm. was it led by hockey or was it led? Who who kind of took the lead on it? It's been 23 years, so I think I can be candid. I didn't know what I was getting into when I showed up. Mm -hmm. I wrote that a little bit in my book, but I showed up like a lawyer. I'd been a lawyer for the league, mm -hmm. had not been inside an operations. First few days, I was just getting situated. We were in temporary offices as the arena was being built. And I decided to ask my then boss, Doug Risebrow, a series of questions so I could get situated. Who's doing the immigration? He says, immigration? So yeah, we're hiring like 14 scouts, a bunch of Canadian trainers, players are coming in. We're going to need 60, 70, 80 immigration applications done in the next couple of months. Like, I don't know. How's the team flying? You got to do a charter contract. We're so nothing was in place except for scouts were out looking at other pro teams and amateurs, mm -hmm. um, at least on the hockey side, nothing was in place. Mm -hmm. And I discovered after a week that I was basically just dropped into like an internet startup. If you just raised $10 million and someone gave you office space in lower Manhattan and said, form a company, everything from who sweeps the floors on up is going to be formed. I realized after a couple of weeks, that's what we were into. So we, I had to hire a medical staff, a training staff, an equipment staff do the budgets for them, order equipment, which we were behind on, which takes a long time to come from right. across the ocean. And so it truly was a startup operation in April of 2000. And we were going to have our first game uh, four and a half months thence. Wow. How did State of Hockey happen? I mean, that's a, been a powerful, it's sort of a, it is a part of the wild brand, but it's sort of also separate in a way. What was the background on the State of Hockey? You know, that was about 80% done when I came in. And so it was kind of explained to me. I wasn't there for the beginning of it. But Mr. Nagley, the first owner of the Wild, in wanting to have the team, was not investing in it as a pure money play. You know, he could have put $80 million into the stock market and done a lot better or other places. He was investing in the community. And by investing in the community, he really wanted to have it identified with the community closely tying the brand of the wild. He brought Matt Maker from his former company, Rollerblade, over to kind of effectuate that. Billy Robertson came on board in the media, who's also a Minnesota native. The people who were building the brand for the wild were very aligned with Minnesota hockey. And so it came from there that, all right, we're here. We want to identify with the community. I would compare it to Indiana basketball, Pittsburgh and Texas, high school football. Like it was already there. The wild just connected with it. That makes sense. Well, and it's been an, it, it's arguably one of the most successful overall franchises in the NHL ever. I mean, it, it's it's really sustained that brand. They've had a couple tough years back in the day, but I mean, from a brand standpoint and an identity standpoint, I mean, that's a lot to be really proud of. And it doesn't always work. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the Portland Trailblazers when all the crime was going on there and became the Portland Jailblazers right. and all the guys being arrested, that brand connection didn't work with the local community, mm -hmm. but this one did. Hmm. So I want to talk about, you did this Panarin deal and you probably have some stories about negotiating contracts and 
and Russian, you could probably write a novel about uh, the Russians and, and all that. We went through something similar here this summer with Kirill. I'm curious, any, any stories on uh, the Panarin negotiation and how that all played out? Well, I, and I'll add to it. Like, how did you even get them to begin with? Accidentally. Okay, so I shouldn't say accidentally. Incidentally would be a better word. Okay. So we don't, if my business is very test hockey. It's a very carefully built brand in itself. When I left the management side, I did so, did so for life reasons. Wanted to have a different life, not traveling all the time, not caught up in the business of that side. So we only recruit from Minnesota, Manitoba, North Dakota, Wisconsin, kind of the bordering states and provinces. Any players we've had from outside have come to us. Mm -hmm. You know, they asked around, got a reference, whatever it is. So former first round pick of the Arizona Coyotes, Victor Tikhanov, whose grandfather was the coach Tikhanov from Miracle Movie and in history, uh, had called me. He said someone recommended me. He wanted to get back into the NHL from Russia. He had played a few years here and then gone back to Russia. He was a dual citizen. And he hired me and I was getting him a deal. And then he said, I got a teammate here who's really coming on strong, doesn't speak a word of English, wants to get to the NHL. He thinks his Russian agents that he've had are corrupt, which often happens, and that they were taking money from Russian teams not to send him to the NHL. You know, he'd say, hey, I want to get to the NHL. Agent would say, oh, yes, excellent, great. Oh, no offers this year. And the kid thought, I don't know if this is true. <laughs> maybe not. But maybe the team was slipping the agent, you know, 500 grand out of the table to keep him in St. Petersburg. I don't know. But I think, he I think suspected so. something was amiss. And so he hired me and I went through the process of getting him eventually to the Chicago Blackhawks, which was a coup in itself. But it was incidental to my work for Victor Tikhanov. My partner in the business, Veritas, and I often spoke. We said, you know, when you have someone like that from Russia, it's only a matter of time. Because it's a corrupt society and it's, you know, what have you done for me lately type thing. So I actually got him the largest two-year deal in NHL history for his second deal. I did his first and second deals. And he moved on to uh, a Russian-based agent. Uh, how, how does that transition happen? Do they kind of just say thanks, but no thanks? Or we've talked yeah. about this offline, but tell right. everybody. It was, it, was a, it was a pleasant conversation. At first, he offered me the chance to work with the Russian because they knew that because I worked for the league as an attorney and helped write the CBA and then negotiated over 300 contracts for a team and then as an agent, that I was the best at what I did, but he was switching for other reasons. And so he said, hey, can you just team up with this guy and uh, you can basically continue as a functionary and he'll be my agent. And my father, who was a criminal defense lawyer, told me many years ago when I was young, again and again, he's like, Tom, never, ever get in bed with the mafia. Like, never, ever do a favor. Don't. He wouldn't even take a free dinner because he was a criminal defense attorney and he defended a bunch of unsavory people. He said, Probably never, a lot of good dinners, though. Never owe them a favor, right? <laughs> Always pay for your dinner. And so I've lived that because once you start down that road, you never know what they're going to ask. I've bought you dinner before. That's true. You're yep. a very bad mafia. Irish mafia. <laughs> Irish yeah. mafia. So I said no, of course, and uh, the relationship ended there, but it was expected. You know, that's the business. You know, he. It, I'd be curious your take. So he's went through some things since, right? So he spoke right. out about Putin, and then mysteriously, uh, sexual conduct allegations come out from ten years prior. He actually took a leave of absence from the league for a while. Right. So is that what happens? They basically, um, when they want to move on you, they can just twist. Whether it's your family back home, um, your reputation back home, and in the world, I mean, and then and then how does he sort that out? I was trying to think about so what happens at the end of that that all of a sudden Panarin comes back and he's playing and does he just buy his way out of that problem or does he have to kind of genuflect 
by leaving the league for a period of time, he's done his penance and then they leave him alone? Like, how does he get out of that? That's a, that's a good question. I'm not privy to the league side of the details. Yep. I would say, this is just me speaking as an observer, the league and the rest of the people in hockey probably believed the allegations launched by the Putin regime, which is where they came from, as much as they believe everything they say about the Ukraine. Exactly. So it was just an issue of how to deal with it. Um, and of course, it was probably surprising, overwhelming at first, take a leave of absence. So I'm not privy to any of the details, but I think everyone involved believed those allegations as much as they believe what the Russians say about the Ukraine. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I just it's it's amazing how they can still wield some control from a long ways away. Well, I think they, that's the majority of the issues, right? These guys come over here and their families are back there, and they'll do anything they have to to keep them under their control. Well, here's something you don't hear very often, but in this instance, is luckily uh, Artemi was an orphan. He was raised by his grandparents, and so he had less family. And most to put a thumb on and maybe he's a little maybe he feels a little more free because of that but he's he's brave and in, in his ability to speak out he was just there was a great clip you might have seen where they made uh ryan lindgren i think as captain or i can't remember and they asked panera why he wasn't captain he says i don't speak english and uh, <laughs> i thought that was pretty nice he said it in, in english <laughs> yes yeah exact perfect english right. um i'd love to hear um so you were assistant GM. You know how hockey teams are built. You know how winning hockey teams are built. When you look at the wild today, um, you know, I had seen you last summer and you were talking about the importance of of centers, you know, building from the middle. And I think at the time you had said, it seems like the wild are built a little bit like the Rangers, you know, where mm -hmm. you, you've, you're sort of missing this load bearing wall down the middle with the, with the centers, the pivots. Um, how do you feel about the construct of the current uh, wild and, and what would you maybe look to add or subtract? I, I don't know if you're super in tune with what they're doing now, but I'd be just curious. Pick your brain. Well, let me give the list, your listeners the background I gave you at the time so they know what we're talking about. Yep. And so comparable to world history where there's a upheaval like a world war, there's often a lot of growth afterwards. World War I produced technology. World War II produced political upheaval. Some people are winners and losers from that. Some make a lot of money. Some countries get further ahead, some further behind. And upheaval in hockey has done the same thing. So if you look at the 1967 expansion, which was the first big modern event in the NHL, Scotty Bowman coached the St. Louis Blues expansion team and introduced suffocating defense to the NHL in a different style of play. Hired by the Montreal Canadiens, he adapted that to better talent to win four cups in a row in the late 70s with a base of suffocating defense and an offense that was freewheeling rather than regimented into wing center, wing and center lanes, you know, without the defense involved. So then a big expansion happened. World Hockey Association joins late 70s. Now there's greater upheaval. Everyone's focused on offense. The 1980s is a bunch of nine to seven, seven to six games. And if you look at who came to the fore then, it was a lot of wingers, Guy Lafleur, Mike Bossy, those types in the 70s, and Jean Rattel and others in the 60s that were the top players in the league, Gordy Howe, a wing. Now you had centers coming you know, from the late 80s for the next 10 years or so, mid to late 80s, I should say, Gretzky, Lemieux, Iserman. So the center has can roam the whole ice and affect the play in different ways, so they came to the fore. Near the end of their tenure, there was a, of, of the centers being in the forefront, there was a, uh, another expansion, but this was a more gradual one, 92, 96, 98, 2000. 
Florida Panthers went to their Stanley Cup finals in their third season and suffocating defense became the way to compete with the lowering of the talent in the NHL and the way video came into play and coaches could use it. And so now defensemen started to become more popular after the year 2000. And you saw big contracts go to them and you saw Anaheim eventually win a cup in 2006 with four number one defensemen, two Hall of Famers and some others. And so defensemen made a big difference and goalies were in there in the mix for a while as yeah, well. Yeah, big pads back then. Right. And so the game changed each time. After the lockout of four or five and the rules changes, defensemen really made the money. For the next 12 years or so, we had a, we had a shorter lockout, 2013. Now you're facing the NHL coming out of COVID. No one knows what to expect. This is like a post-World War II environment in Europe where it's wide open. There's a salary cap that may or may not go up. There's much more scientific ways of judging players with analytics and video. Now we have teams breaking down players' strides frame by frame you know, as prospects and how they affect the game. They have sensors in their equipment for their heart rates and how quickly they move. A lot of data out there, a lot of possibilities of change. I don't know what the next thing is. If you look at the NFL from Bill Walsh to Bill Belichick, you know, different coaches had their ascension times because they came up with an idea. Someone in hockey is going to do that. We don't know what the answer is yet, but we see the wild where Bill Guerin has made a careful plan of exchanging older assets for new ones and trying not to throw in his lot with one type of player that I can tell. So he's not saying, oh, we need size. Or, oh, we need speed. Yep. Or we got to build from the middle or we need a certain one. He seems to have hedged his bets very well to build a team with a base of hockey knowledge, hockey sense, and talent so they can adapt or compete in whatever the new environment's going to look like. That is its pluses and minuses. You know, Detroit with Scotty Bowman in the late 90s decided to break the trap with a certain type of player, and, and they did it by relying on their defense and relying on a style of play that could break the trap. They took a risk and it worked. You know, it worked out that Pavel Datsuk was a late round pick and Zetterberg and those guys. The Wild's kind of doing the opposite, saying we're going to be able to compete in whatever environment comes down the pike in this new NHL that's going to evolve over the next three years, and we're going to be a competitor, and hopefully we can take advantage of inefficiencies in the market along the way and become a champion. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. It's like uh, good good players, good guys, build a culture that can, no matter which way the ship turns, they got a fighting chance. Right. Versus dictating. They bet red instead of betting red 76, so they yes. got a 50% chance. I like that. I um, I don't want to cut you off. I, do you have any? Oh no! I mean, this has been really interesting. Go, I, uh, keep going. You were in. Uh, I, did you have any? You have any Bugard stories? Were you ever around Derek? I mean, I read this sure. the book about him, and he seemed like a fascinating individual. I, I it seems like you overlapped considerably. I'm just curious if you had any stories about the boogeyman. That's when you and I were in Houston. Rest in peace. Yeah. So we so had him in Houston yeah. initially. Yep. Yeah. And Tom probably has different stories because I wasn't, you know, I, I flew into Houston once a month as the GM, watched the team, dealt with everyone. He was there more frequently. Yeah. But this was a guy who, A, liked to fight. Not everyone does. I'd say less than 50% of the fighters in the NHL really enjoy it. They're happy to be in the NHL or in pro hockey doing it. But Derek would sit with me at a game when we were watching, say, in training camp someone else, and he'd judge how the people lined up when they fought, what they did. He watched videos. He enjoyed it. Like John Scott, for instance, we also had, was such a good guy. He didn't want to hurt other people. He did it when he had to and to protect the team. Derek enjoyed that part. He was also so grateful and happy to be in hockey every day. You know, you see a lot of people who are just like, ah, you know, I deserve this. I deserve that. My gloves don't feel right. You know, Derek was a grateful human being in the time I knew him. I moved on from the wild before he hit his trouble. 
but it was great fun that way. And then Tom had him on the business side down there. Yeah, he was great. He was fantastic. I remember, it, you know, um, I oversaw the business and um, you guys would come down and even from year one to year two, you know, first year, he's just kind of out there and he wasn't a great skater. And I know you guys were working on him to, to, to get to where he needed to be to get called up to the big team. Mm -hmm. But the first year, he, you know, pretty much fought everybody. The second year, there were grown men fleeing from him. <laughs> and the American Hockey League back then had some tough guys. Yeah. And he'd come out there and you'd see guys literally sprinting to the bench. That's and he crazy. was just pounding people. We had, but he was a really nice guy. To your point, he was a very, very yeah. nice person. Good person. He got taken advantage of by a few people along the way. In Houston, we had I had brought in Billy Tibbetts. Oh, I remember that. Which is a great story. <laughs> had to drive him to the airport, and then uh, a guy yeah. named Brad Wingfield, who apparently was in this. Yeah, he's the Danbury ES Trasher. ESPN Thirty Thirty, and he mentions me. I've never seen it, but I simply recruited him off of stats, which is unusual, you know. But you don't. You don't scout the lower minors, but I noticed he had, I think, 562 penalty minutes and 30 goals in the low minors. And I thought, I got to bring this guy to camp just to see what he's like. So, yeah. we had some interesting characters in Houston in those days. That Billy Tibbetts, when you, your story about taking him to the airport, I remember, um, well, we, we won't get into all the details why we had to take him to the airport, but he comes back. Wasn't it a big range of emotions in the car? He was going from one yes. extreme to another. So, my deal with my boss was- about, I was worried about his safety. If I brought in this guy- Yep. If he did certain things that had to be cut, then I had to take care of it. So I said, all right. You know, we were out of the playoff spot by three points or so with six games left and brought this guy in on a PTO pro tryout. Todd McClellan was our coach, now the coach in uh, Los Angeles Kings. So uh, he got us to the playoffs. First round of the playoffs, one of those triggers happened and my boss is like, you got to chip him out. He's like, you can't tell a trainer doing anything. You have to do it all yourself. So I had to go tell him. Now, if you don't know who Billy Tibbetts is, you can look it up. But and uh, he had his challenges, but I had to help him pack his equipment and his apartment, bring it to the car, drive him to the airport, and I got stuck in one of those legendary Houston traffic jams where he wasn't going to make his plane. He's like, "Oh, Mr. Lynn, I'm not going to make my plane." I was like, "Oh no, no, you're going to make it. <laughs> you're going to make it." So I was like driving on the shoulder and zipped up, pulled up to the airport, threw his bags on the curb. I was like, "Just run in there. You're going to make it." Because back then uh, you had to check in, I think, 30 minutes before your flight to be valid, and it was like 36 minutes before his flight, and I got him off. Yeah. He was a character. That's He was a talented guy, but he had his problems. Tremendous athlete, but like so many of us, self-defeating. So I got a question. So, uh, King, I don't know if you got another question. What I was going to ask now, you know, representing all these players, how do you, um, I guess, how do you work with your players to get them where they need to be? One, one part of the question. And the second would be, let's say you have a player who's being cut. How do you then try to find a spot for him? Right. Just going to the fact those are two vastly different questions. Yep. Let me focus on the first one first. I'll okay. try not to wind them together. So the age of the player is important. Most of the players we get as amateurs and we're an NCAA family advisor to them. So we're looking at analyzing their game. A lot of it's off ice. So when you look at third round picks in the NHL draft, when last I analyzed it, about 15% of them made it to the NHL full time. The other 85% wasn't because they weren't the right height or talent. If you're picked in the third round of the NHL draft, you've most likely been to the combine. You've been seen live over 25 times by NHL scouts. You've been ranked by central scouting. You've had your stride and game analyzed by video. No one shows up in camp since 2003 mm -hmm. as a third round pick and someone says, oh, he's only 6'1". He's not 6'3". Or he yeah. can barely skate. Like it doesn't happen. 
So that 85%, it's off ice. Drugs, alcohol, video games, girlfriend. Cheese balls. Cheese balls. Yeah, you'll hear later. Life approach, you know, all these things. And so a lot of what we tell players is that. But you're dealing with players who are 16, 18, 20, 21 years old. So part of what we offer is actual knowledge. Here's how you make it in very detailed ways. And the other part is trying to get people to adopt that knowledge. Because most societies historically took boys who were between ages 16 and 20, just took them out of society. Spartans, knighthood, you know, you were a squire for a knight back in the days. Mandatory conscription. You were a squire, weren't you? I was actually. You started to be a knight. But most societies thought, you know, these boys are full of hormones and bad decisions, as insurance companies would tell you. That's why they charge you more for their insurance. That's a so great we just, we take tagline. Them, we That's take the them caption out of, of this podcast. Bad idea genes. <laughs> so they took them out of society. What we've done in American society and Canadian society by implication is said, you know what? The decisions you make as a young man between the age of 16 and 20 are going to dictate the rest of your life. Whether you do well in school or sports or whatever else, you're pretty much set. So our challenge with these guys is often taking those two very incongruous facts and trying to marry them. A guy who's a talented athlete, often very smart, and trying to get them to make the right decisions and take the right path to get the most out of it. That 15% number indicates that most people don't make it who have the ability to get to the NHL. We try to get our guys into that 15%, as it were. And that is a process of communication, uh, judgment, you know, mm -hmm. prudence, and when to say things, when not to say things, timing, and just getting players to be, as I call it, the best version of themselves. Okay. Um, how, um, kind of back to the second part then. So let's say you have an, uh, you're now, you have a professional, he's been released, or he wants to be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that from trying to find that player a spot? You got to be really candid. You know, the name of our firm is Veritas Hockey. Veritas means truth in Latin. And sometimes I think we should have chosen the word for candor instead of truth. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can be honest without being candid. And most marriage, most strong marriages are based on that fact. Mm -hmm. so we, John and I wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah right. We're we've not, heard, you've we're heard not, about them. Yeah, we're not heard, married. We've no. seen them. We're so not married. We're just partners. When someone asks, does this make me look fat? You can be honest without being candid. Mm -hmm. yes, by being completely silent or by are looking at, why are you looking at me when you said that running for the I once told you you were fat <laughs> and bothered you for three weeks I'm longer than that really no it's still does. sorry so candor would be death to a marriage but it can be important in a relationship it can be difficult but with a player who's been cut you have to go to the root of why they've been cut sometimes it's unfair sometimes it's justified sometimes it's a mix most often it is you know, players say, I wasn't with the right people in camp. I didn't get my opportunity. And I'd say, look, I was on the team side. And what the team doesn't want to hear is, hey, if you put this player with the right players, will succeed. They're going to want to say, I want a player who is the player other players want to play with. Make your own way. That's how we make the team. Teams want players that make them better, not players who can just be there. So you got to do stuff in camp that shows you'll make the team better. And very often players will say, well, I was as good as five guys that made the team. Well, I'm not criticizing you, but I'm telling you that's not the burden of proof. Burden of proof is that you have clear and convincing evidence that you are better than the guy you're competing with. Otherwise, you can get moved on to the next place. And so that, that difficult conversation then results in where do you want to go from here? If you're on an NHL contract sent to the minors, not much you can do, but talk to them about how to work their way back up because mm -hmm. they're under contract. If they're on a PTO, pro tryout or amateur tryout, they're looking for other opportunities and we start saying, all right, that didn't work out for you. What do we look at? Do we look at Europe? Do you want to try again? Do you want to do a PTO in the American League? Try to work your way up. So 
there are options for every player, but the candor in the beginning is the most important thing is why throw him back into the same situation if he's not going to be different? Okay. You want to find out either he's going to change or you're going to change the opportunity so he fits it better. Makes uh, sense. I know you can't talk about your amateur players and you've got some interesting ones, but uh, as far as the guys you represent, professionals, anybody that you're excited about, um, you know, coming up, you know, we had a little, I saw some stuff on text about a certain player, but who would you, who would you like to, I guess, pump some tires on some of yeah. your guys? This is a very exciting time for our company because when we came online um, in late 2011, our whole idea in starting an agency was to recruit amateur players and take them all the way through. Not to try to build an agency by stealing other people's players, but by developing players. So that first class we had was a class of 95 and born players. And now that's coming to fruition as players of ours are coming online, draft picks and signing deals. Carson Kuhlman in Seattle, um, former captain of UMD, was captain and scored the winning goal uh, in overtime as they won the national championship in Excel Energy Center here. He's in Seattle and is finally going to get the opportunity to be the best version of himself. You know, we just talked about, is it your fault or is it the team's fault or a mixture of both? He, he was with the Boston Bruins organization for some time that had seven forwards who were just top guys. So he was had difficulty breaking in the top nine, much less the top seven to show his stuff. Now he's with an expansion team. And that player that I've seen play since he was 14, I think will finally have a legitimate opportunity to be himself. He was on the ice last night for the... Didn't get the assist, but got, helped make the play. It was a winning goal in overtime for Seattle. I expect to see more of that. Where's he from? Like what part of Minnesota? Uh, Esco, Minnesota. He played Esco. for the Cloquet-Esco Cloquet okay. uh, co-op. All right, cool. At UMD. Um, so he's Minnesotan through and How through. How often do you talk to a player like that? You know, every player is different. Some players want to talk every week or more, you know, just to bounce things off. Other players, I'll call them and they'll say like, yeah, what do you want? <laughs> like, like is that kid. a bad sign? <laughs> <laughs> no, because some players think like you're someone I talk to when I have a problem or an issue. Exactly. I don't just rap with you. Like you're an old guy, right? And I am. I even have some gray hair. No. So, yeah. You look good in the same. Might even though. get a little overweight. But uh, the the feel for the players is totally what they want. Some want to bounce stuff off twice a week. Other ones are just like, hey, I'll talk to you when I need to talk to you. So is it is it different with the advisor part with the families? Does that yes, get a little bit more? Because then you're involving, especially with minors, the parents. So I have kind of a strict policy of a player's a minor. We reach out to the parents first. Not only does do. I, yeah. I, I hate, there's been no scandals on this, so don't get me wrong, but I just don't like the idea that a 40, 50, 60 year old man reaches out to a 15 to 16 year old player and starts developing a relationship with them about working together before involving the parents. So the only time I've done that is when I don't have the parents number and I just ask the kid, hey, can I have your parents number? You know, it'd be the first question, but you start with the parents and then you involve them both. And there's a tricky period as he becomes of age, you know, 18, 19, 20, he's got to take over his own stuff. And we're very candid about that. Like, all right, mom and dad, I'm an attorney. Everyone in our firm is an attorney. So with attorney-client privilege, I can only talk to you now to the extent your son allows me to, you know, about his stuff, which they almost always say yes, 100%, but that's, it's a new thing. It introduces them to the idea that their son is now maturing and has to make his own decisions. It's usually not a transition in one day. It's over the course of a year or two. And you don't sign anything official until they become professionals. Well, we have to have an NCAA family advisor agreement. Not that you have to, but it's best to have that. And then if they hire me as an agent when they turn pro, most do, but you know, there's always a chance they won't. That's a totally separate business. It's like a wall in our business between the pro agency side and the amateur side. Makes sense. My last question for you. What do you Wait, do? I didn't finish the last answer. Oh, go ahead. The players I was excited about. So the other guy, another we had two more I'm like very excited about. Wade Allison with the Flyers is awesome. 
he comes off the farm in Manitoba. He uh, went and played at Western Michigan, joined the Flyers. And if you look him up, your listeners look him up online. He looks just like the Flyers mascot. Gritty? Absolutely. I think, because they had drafted Wade <laughs> before they made the mascot, I think they modeled the mascot on him. He is a fan favorite. <laughs> he hits, he scores, he's full of piss Wade Allison, where's he from, you said? Uh, uh, Roland. No, not Roland. He's going to kill me for that. Carlisle. It's it's an area. There's, there's Myrtle, Carlisle, and Roland are close together in Manitoba. And... His, oh address my is, God. his address is Roland, but he's actually- Well, I guess we know what our promo clip for this episode is. <laughs> he does he's actually from Myrtle. God, Philadelphia is going to love like this guy. I know, right? You know, this guy never <laughs> would- He's not gluten-free, is he? No. You, you, you're going to have to listen to the beginning of our stuff. <laughs> oh, my oh, goodness. Don't, don't waste your time on that. So he's going to be a lot of fun to watch this year because John he can Tortorella do that likes if he needs to. He can clean up if he needs to. Well, yeah, it's the Brent Burns thing. Jesus. Yeah, I like that. And then we got so, Brian okay. Hallen in from Delano, who was a Hobie finalist last year for Michigan Tech. He's with the New Jersey Devils. So Halo's the oldest of 11 kids and basically fought his way, not literally, but figuratively fought his way to being a top college player and an NHL deal as an undrafted, unnoticed guy. So every hockey player out there who's 18 in Minnesota who thinks, oh, I wasn't drafted high in the USHL. I'm not on any list. Halo made his own way. He really bootstrapped it. He's playing last night for the New Jersey Devils, 10, 10 minutes in an exhibition game already as a first-year guy. And, of course, there's Jimmy Schultz, who most people know because he was a hero for Minnetonka. He was a three-year captain for St. Cloud. He was a finalist for the Hobie Baker along with Adam Fox and Cal McCarr. And now he's signed in the Seattle organization too. So he'll be making his way in a new place to try to get to that holy grail, which is full-time NHL player. That's, That's awesome. You got some you got, yeah, you some, got some nice good, guys yeah, lining yeah, up. Some... And I know some of the the other ones you can't talk about yes or yet because of the rules are very exciting as well. I was just going to ask, you're with these families, you watch these kids grow up, you're starting them, they're kind of homegrown. What's the biggest mistake you see families making or or even players, you know, is it you kind of said, you know, the off ice is more important than on ice. Maybe right. that's a theme. But like what what do you just see consistently and you think, man, that is not it. That's not it. So when I first sit down with a family, uh, the first thing I ask about is their grades. And I always surprise people. What's your GPA? And then what courses are you taking? Not that that's going to dictate his hockey career, but you can learn a lot more about a player starting from that side. And how, how seriously he takes that. Because in hockey, grades mean a lot. It can mean how many opportunities you have to play hockey in college, pick the best place, so on, so on. Greater scholarships and all that. So I'll ask that. And then I turn to a pitch if I want the family to, to like us, as it were, or think about hiring us. I'll look at them and say, this is a very hard road. There are a thousand players in the U.S. born in 2006 who want your son's place. Between 80 and 120 in any given birth year will make it. Most of that will be off-ice decisions. It's a tough road. There's going to be a lot of adversity. Working with me means I'm trying to build your son up like the layers of an onion so that he can weather adversity. It's not like a balloon that will pop when he hits it, but so that he's a strong man in character in his hockey game, off-ice and on. Now, often they'll say, well, we just talked to three other advisors, and they said, no, they have a shortcut. You know, my son's going to be a first-round <laughs> pick. You know, just sign with them, and they'll make it easy. I don't have to worry about anything. And I used to argue with those people, but I learned not to. Because water finds its own level and birds of a feather flock together. If people are going to believe that there's a shortcut, it often wasn't going to be a fit with us anyway. I demand a lot of our people, our players, um, to make them help make them the best version of themselves. And remember, agents are like farmers. What do farmers do? Harvest and grow? They don't. 
They prepare they the conditions. You, you just got. Do you set see up. how he was just like yeah, that? Up. He's like you moron. They prepare the conditions for food to grow, but the food grows on its own. So oh. an agent can only do that, right? And so parents. He, he did go to Yale. My neck hair just went up. Parents need to understand that, and I'd say most people want to hear your son's the next Wayne Gretzky. You're the best parent. Your Bantam coach was wrong. Your junior coach was wrong. Only I believe in you. That's what many want to hear. And so the people that end up with us are people that just want to hear the truth and make their own way. Well, you sound like a barrel laugh. God, that was just amazing. <laughs> that was like a Fleetwood wow. Mac song mixed like, with Confucius. Wow. Mixed you want to work with us, we're going to tell you how much you suck. I started making yeah. like a bonsai tree while he was telling that story. That was amazing. <laughs> so this is Tom Lynn. He's with Veritas Hockey. He's building them from the ground up, having a ton of success and clearly a renaissance man in your uh in your suit here. I mean, I, well, you know. Well, uh, tell them the book you wrote too, how they can get it. Yeah. On Amazon? Yes. So we got a book building an NHL franchise from scratch, the first era of the Minnesota Wild. Apparently, this is the manual that both Seattle and Vegas have used. Um, where do they get that book? It's available online. Most people order it through Amazon because it's the easiest and most common way to do it. And there is a secret baked into the title, as okay. it were, because- the reason I use that phrase, and a scout of ours used to use it a lot, is that you can't bake a cake quicker just by putting the oven up to 450 instead of 350 or 325. I knew I was right? screwing that up. See, it just messes up the cake. So, so many people in hockey franchises tried to do it too fast, thinking, well, just turn up the heat and then we'll have our cake more quickly. It's the same with player development. I often have to tell people, well, your son shouldn't go away yet, or he shouldn't take that opportunity yet. Joe Sackick famously turned down the NHL because he thought he'd need another year of junior. There's a right time for everyone, and you can't bake a cake any quick, any more quickly than it's supposed to be baked. So when you look at that title, realize that not only do you have to work hard in this game to build a team or a career, you have to do it at the right pace. Is that why all the best hockey players are cake eaters? Oh, he's oh, a, he's an Edina boy. That is just such <laughs> Brian, nonsense. Brian Burke, Brian Burke would deny would deny that. Uh, I'm just kidding. So let's support John. Tom. Let's get his book. If you are a parent of a, you know, a, whatever the birth year is that matters right now, some stud coming up. I think they could do worse than to hear the truth and the candor from Veritas Hockey. So look them up as you're looking for a family advisor. Mr. Tom Lynn, thanks for joining Great us here you. on Can You Keep a Secret. Thanks,